I want to um, define some leadership terms I think are important to the whole house. And then specifically, I want to talk to all of these armor bearers who are upholding the arms of the leader of this house. Um, two words I want to give you as um, I, I sometimes call them buzz terms that we deal with leadership. But in every leadership understanding, we have to understand leadership from two categories. Is what it, when I explain leadership people, I talk about primary leadership and secondary leadership. And primary leadership is always singular. In other words, God only calls one person that he imparts vision to. Everybody else gets mission. So primary leaders get the vision. Secondary leaders are responsible for the mission. And let me define that in better terms. A vision is a plan. It is a plan. That's all a vision is. In fact, in a spiritual sense, it is the ability to see things from divine viewpoint. Now, listen how important that is. It's the ability to see things from divine viewpoint, not from your viewpoint, but from divine viewpoint. God only imparts his divine viewpoint for a house to one man. He, in turn, has to impart that to you. So when you, mission is defined as what you do with the vision you receive. Because if the plan, if the, if the vision is the plan, then the mission is the strategy. And um, if I was going to do Numbers 13, I would really try to show you that in terms of the 12 spies that, that Moses sent out. I don't want to go there, but I want to mention it. Because the problem with Numbers 13 and sending out the 12 spies was for them to see their job was to go out and do mission. They thought their job was to see vision. They were told to go out to see how they could take the land. They were never asked if they could take the land. They went out and started talking about their incapability of being able to take something that God just wanted them to strategize on. Sometimes because we think too much, we mess up the strategy. Because we, we think, well, oh, that don't make no sense. I don't know what Pastor talked about. I don't, Bishop didn't mean that. See, we strategizing on in a negative terms because all we need to do is carry out the how. So then if we get the formula right, it is up to the leader to discuss the what. It is up to you guys to figure out the how. You know, if he wants to put something up in the back, that's what I see. And your job is to figure out how we're going to put it up in the back. <laughs> He's not supposed to do the vision and the mission, or else he don't need you. <laughs> Amen? Because sometimes we look at the leaders and say, well, what do you want to do? How do you want to do it? That's what I told you. I told you so you could figure out the how. I just told you to what? Because a vision always see a visionary always sees the overall plan. What you, the details are up to you to try to figure out how we're going to strategize it. So you got vision and mission in your mind. See, see what I'm talking. Vision is always singular. There can only be one visionary in the house, or else you will have division. If more than one person has vision, then you got 
division. That's how you got division, because it means that you got a divided vision in the house. So only one person can see the plan of God for the house, because God only speaks for one man at the hour. In Joshua 1, he tells Joshua, he said, Moses, my servant, is dead. So as I've been with Moses, I'll be with you. In other words, Joshua, I couldn't talk to you till Moses died, because I could only talk to one visionary at a time. I talked to a whole lot of mission people, but I could only talk to one visionary. So until God removes this leader, nobody else will see the vision for Philippians. Only thing everybody else sees is the mission. So your assignment is the what? The how. His assignment is the what? The what. So the what comes from bishop. The how comes from you. Well, let's see how that works, because even at that, that sounds a little too logical. So let's see how to put it in spiritual context, because I want to talk about how to get a touch from God. Amen? Touch is so important in Scripture. First uh, Samuel chapter 10, Alicia, and verse 20. Well, read verse 25, too. I want to read verse 25, 26, 27. The thought is coming out of verse 26. But let me set the groundwork before you read. In First Samuel 10, um, Saul has been solidified as king over Israel. The people have decided that they wanted a leader because Samuel was moving off the scene. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, they, um, they discussed this removing of Samuel. They knew he was getting old and it was time to transition, but none of his sons were ready for leadership. They had been corrupted. It is um, a sad commentary sometimes when leadership does not stay in a generation. But sometimes God crosses his hands. And I love that with Jacob in, um, when he's ready to die. You know, Jacob has this thing in the beginning of his ministry. Remember, he cheated his brother out of his birthright. And then here he is at the end of his life in Genesis 48, looking at Joseph's two sons, and he winds up blessing the younger son over the older son. And so in a sense, he was dealing, and Joseph figured he was old and febile and tried to uncross his hands. And he says, no, my son, I know what I'm doing. Because the visionary always knows the what, even if it's out of order. Because the order was to bless the older over the younger. And sometimes when, when Bishop puts people in position, in your mind, you might feel you're more qualified. But it's not based on qualification, it's based on assignment. Hmm. And see, it's, it's not, if we were going to qualify leaders, then when you even look at Jesus, none of his leaders were really qualified for what he called them for. They were not qualified to be the people who were going to turn the world upside down. These were, in fact, in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the scripture said they took notice of them that these were ignorant and unlearned men. Yet what they were saying, what they were doing was upsetting the very city. Yet in people's mind, they shouldn't be the one in charge. So when you judge where people are and what they should do, it's not really where, where God wants you. Let's read the text and I'll deal about the touch. Uh, 1 Samuel 10, start at verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom 
and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Hold it. What he did was tell them how the king was going to be regulated because sometimes we need to know how leadership is regulated. I'm going to show you how all of this is going to be regulated, how it's going to be down. You're going to understand. See, we've got to go back to the consecration of bishop, all the things that we did to consecrate him, laying on of hands, the, the forms that was done, the dressing of him, that's the regulations of the king. That's how things were done. See, what everything was given there. Go ahead, read on. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and mm -hmm. wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. Oh, here's the point. Look, go ahead now. Verse 26. And Saul also went home to Gibeah. And there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. Hold it right there. There went with him a band of men who what? Whose hearts God had touched. See there? God touched their hearts. What does that mean? That means that God had hand-selected people to support the leader. And that God had already prepared them. Before they decide, see, you, you, think, you think you came here on your own. But like Jesus told the disciples in, in John 15 and 15, you've not chosen me, I've chosen you. Amen. And so here is the selection of God with Saul. He put around him some men who God touched their heart. Now, now it's always the negative with the positive, but look at verse 27. But the children of Bilal said, how shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents. But he held his peace. See, sometimes we think because the leader's holding his peace that sometimes he's weak and don't know what's going on. But sometimes you just got to hold your peace and let things work out. Here's, here is two groups we see. We see one group whom God has touched their heart. Another group, the NIV described them as scoundrels. These men of Eli, they're scoundrels. They didn't mean right anyway. They round in the circle, but they really don't mean right. Because if they met, met right, they wouldn't be described as scoundrels. Other words, they were crooks. They were deceivers. They were people who were undermining the ministry without real exceed. It's a difference. See how these men despise. They were not rebellious. They were despisers. Now, see, now rebellious people outright rebel. They get up and walk out. Despisers just don't do what they're supposed to do. The people when a king is appointed are supposed to bring gifts and lay it at his feet. These men stayed around, but they despised. They were not tithers. They were not workers. They wanted positions without responsibility. They were not accountable. These are men. But let's go back to verse 26 because I want to deal with these. What does it mean to be touched by God? And, and, I'll, and I'll cover that real fast because Bishop has some things that he wants to do. But I just want to take the word touch and talk about what we're doing. The first thing I want to do in terms of touch is talking about if you've been touched by God, then number one, you've been transformed. You've been transformed. God always, and, and earlier in chapter 10, it says about Saul when he took over being the leader that he was changed into another man. What happens? God changes what he, he does. He changes your ambition to passion. Now let, me, let, me, let me describe that. Because if you're really a leader of the house, you have gotten your ambition slowed down and got your passion excited. And what's the difference? 
Ambition is the main thing that keeps you messed up in the kingdom because ambition has to do with what you want. When a person is ambitious, they're ambitious for greatness. They're ambitious for popularity. They're ambitious to get things. It means that you have a desire to think more of yourself than what you're ready to have. Didn't say you might not get it. But most of the time, ambitious people feel ambitious because they want to move ahead of their time. And sometimes we feel that way, especially as leaders, and I'm talking to leaders most of the night, but I want everybody to listen. Because sometimes what leaders do, they get so ambitious, they think they're ready for something before they are. And sometimes the leader, the main leader of the house has to know when you're ready for an assignment and when you're ready to move up and when you be elevated. Promotion doesn't come from the east or the west. It comes from the Lord. So it's not about how much money you give to the church, how much ability you have on the outside. I mean, if you look at the real strategy of Jesus, when he picks a treasure for the disciples, he picks Judas. I mean, the CPA of the group was Matthew. He was a tax collector. But instead of picking Matthew, which would have been my pick, he picks Judas. You know why you pick for certain assignments? Not always because you have a gifting for it. It's because God needs to work something out of you. Amen. Wow. Amen. So sometimes he puts you in position so he can work something out of you. There was a reason that he gave Judas the purse. There was a reason every time he expected something to be in the purse, Judas said it was nothing there. Every time I asked for a tally, you know, let's get the purse, let's feed him. You just say, we ain't got nothing but two fish and five loaves of bread. But if you look at Luke chapter 8, a whole band followed Jesus that supported his ministry. Women followed. And Luke 8 is, uh, talks about women who followed him who supported his ministry. Verses 1, 2, and 3. So he had support. And if Jesus asked to take care of something, he must have knew something should have been there. But he doesn't pick Matthew, he picks Judas. And the obvious leader of the group of disciples was a hothead who flew off the handle every time he turned around. Yet he becomes the most prominent disciple of the group, Peter. He is so impetuous that when they come to get Jesus, he's already been carrying a weapon with him. <laughs> Don't even think about the odds. There's a whole troop coming to get Jesus, and he raises out his weapon and cuts off the high priest here. I mean, what do you think was going to happen? They could have been slaughtered. But he didn't think about the odds. He was impetuous that God used his personality later for the courage and boldness he needed to stand for him. But he had to work through some things. He had to have his heart touched. Wow. See, God doesn't change you. He changed how you react with him. Amen. Amen. He didn't change his hot temperedness. That worked good for him later in, in being a, a soldier for the Lord. But God changed his heart. He touched his heart. So the first thing I want you to see is that these leaders got transformed. They got transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17. I won't quote it. I'll let you read it. 2 Corinthians 5.17. 
because it's so important that we see this whole idea and this whole transition of, of being transformed. Because when, if you're not transformed, you can't be used. Because you're only here because God touched your heart Amen. to get with this man. And see, in Numbers 11, Moses had more leadership problems than anybody else. I was looking at Moses' life, and his whole ministry was plagued with leadership problems. Because he was such a humble man, because the Scripture said he was the most meekest man on the face of the earth. Meekness, by the way, in the Hebrew means strength under control. It doesn't mean you're weak. It just means you got your strength under control. And so... Because Moses didn't fly off the handle and didn't challenge everybody that challenged him. Sometimes he just acted like that. You want to you offer up the sacrifice? Go ahead. And you know what happened? The sons of Korah got all swallowed up in the earth. Because they offered up the scripture called it strange fire. Yeah, you might be the preacher, but you're not the leader. And it's not about how good you preach. It's about who God placed in authority. Amen. So, and, and you, and you got to learn that that's what submission is all about. 2 Corinthians 5.17, what does it say? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Transformation. Yes. He's got to be transformed first. What else happens? All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, what does he mean there by old things? Old things are your thinking. Of what you think is right. Is that I've got to strip you of what you think things should be run like. And then I've got to make you a new creature. What is that? Your new way of thinking is to submit to the leadership of the visionary. And not try to be creative. Everybody can try to be creative. I can do that. Yeah, you can be creative, but you can't be creative and be touched by God because first thing he has to do transformation here is about taking away your creative juices actually it means if you read first Corinthians 5 in context you'll get it that's what I'm telling you he made us ambassadors of this whole idea of reconciliation so we can reconcile people back to God because our first thought is to get even with people who've done things to us but you've got to be transformed. He said he's given you, verse 18, 19 says, he's given you the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, we get back people. Your whole thing has got to change. We're not going to get even anymore. We're going to reconcile people back to God. People I didn't think should come, I know got to come now. I can't evaluate the cause because God is calling all kinds of fish in. I can't decide who can come in and who can't come in because God called them. I've got to be touched enough by God to see past who they are today yes, to who they can be tomorrow. Because in essence, God has called you to a transforming ministry, which means everything that he envisioned as it come in the house. See, I, I passed it years ago, and one of the things for a while, I was wondering why my church wasn't growing. I had a small group of people. And I was wondering why I wasn't growing. Then I happened to run into a couple of people who had been visiting my church for a while. And um, I said, oh, did, did you enjoy the teaching when you came? I love the teaching, Pastor. It was real good. I said, well, what happened? Well, I was talking to a couple of your people, and they said, we're a nice little family here. You know, we don't need anybody else. We're a nice little family. I had this group who was there who did not want to share me with anybody else. 
They were satisfied with having their little ownership on me and not having anybody else crowd. You got to get transformed out of that kind of thinking. Because we got to grow. We got work to do. Your pastor's got a big vision. You can't get upset because others come in. And then that means you don't have as much attention because the more people, the less attention I'm going to have. So you got to get transformed. Everybody say transform. Number two, well, let me say this before. Let me give you a principle to, to transformation. Uh, it's simply this. Uh, if you get transformed, it will bring cleansing and power if you lead, yield yourself totally to God. It will cleanse you, and it will empower you as you yield yourself totally to God. That's what the transformation is for. I've got to transform you. Because we're not running this like a Fortune 500 company. We're running this like the Lord says. And so the Lord has some plans that might not seem logical to you, but they're spiritual to him. Mm -hmm. Amen? Okay, next one is ordains. Uh, John 15, 16. But you may need to start at verse 14. Uh, John 15, 14, 15, 16. Let me show you, because um, the Lord, so you have to be ordained. Ordination means to be set apart. It means to be set. When you ordain somebody, you set them apart. And, you, and when you set them apart, you set them apart for an assignment. The assignment is to serve, not to create, but to serve. You know, here's, here's some of the negativity I tell leaders you don't do. When you're in charge for the night and, you're, and your pastor giving you the charge, you don't never want to get up and say, uh, you know, I ain't, I'm not Bishop Ellis. We know you're not Bishop Ellis. <laughs> I know Bishop Ellis do things this way, but the Lord is leading me. The devil is a liar. Don't change the pattern. Amen. Just because you have the spotlight, you have no right to change the pattern. Uh, you just fight that spirit, brother. You got to be under subjection. Because that could be a rebellious spirit or a despising spirit that you think it's the Lord talking to you. Because anytime you call off a pattern, that's a danger. You know, so even, you know in, 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 in two breaths, in two breaths, listen to me, in two breaths in Matthew 16, Peter blessed and cursed the Lord. In the first breath, he says, Thou art the Son of God. In the second breath, he says to him, Be it far from you. And Jesus said he got to suffer. He said, Get behind me, Satan. Amen. One minute, he received a revelation from the Father. The next minute, he's being used by Satan. So you got to be careful what's talking to you. Because it might be a rebellious spirit. And so what, what's so important is to see that, that pattern. John 15, 14, 15, and 16. Ye are my friends, if mm -hmm. ye do whatsoever I command you. Now, now he, he talks about the group that is close to him. This is an intimate group. And now, remember, in, in Luke 10, he, there were 70 disciples other than the 12 that he called. But the 12 were intimate. So he called the 12, the ones that stood close to the rabbi, they were his friends. Everybody else could be their acquaintances, but the ones close was his friends. 
So he said, I, I, I'm calling you my friends. Look, now I've got some things I can share in leadership meeting that I can't share with the congregation because you are my friends. And so when you hear what I'm sharing with my heart, then you got to go out and strategize on how you can make it happen with the people. You're supposed to motivate the people because between the leader and the people are the secondary leaders. And if you look at what happened in... Um, Numbers chapter 13 with the 12 spies that went out, when they came at the, re the report, the people heart was listening to the majority. You know, one of me, all of you. And so when he's trying to do a visit, if y'all not with me, when I used to have um, church meetings once a year, we call them visit, me visit meetings, not church meetings, I had a leadership meeting first because I wanted them to hear my heart and know what was going on because I didn't expect no leader to get up during the vision meeting. And have anything to say, because you should have had yours to say in our meeting, so that you can be my silent support in the vision meeting. Amen. I don't expect my leader to jump out. Oh, Pastor, why are you doing that now? Wait a minute, we've already discussed this. Why are you making a scene in front of the congregation look like leadership not together? Oh, I just got a question. You didn't ask a question when we had our meeting. Why are you waiting until we get in the congregation? See, that makes it look a little, little bad. It's a conspiracy. That makes it look like I'm not in charge. And that you ain't even tell your leaders what's going on. And then how you expect me to follow you and your leaders don't respect you? Uh-oh. Follow, respect. Read on. Ye are my friends. If mm -hmm. ye do whatsoever I command you. See, you are my friends if you follow my instructions and carry them out like I command you. We, in other words, how can two walk together except they agree? I cannot have leaders tied to me who don't become obedient with me. Amen. Obedient to the things that God has given me. I'm, talking about the, I'm not talking about being no robots, being no dummies or anything. I'm just talking about catching the passion. Remember I gave that word passion in there? Passion and ambition. Ambition is what you want to do. Passion is getting the fervor and the fever of what Bishop wants and begin to try to make it happen for him. Yes, sir. With my own personal group, Living in Favor, I canceled my um, conference this year, but all my leaders knew my heart and they strategized on wanting to come here anyway for a vision meeting. So we got, we're coming, they come together, all my leaders are coming, and it was not planned because they knew my heart. They knew what I wanted, so they were coming in. I didn't ask them to come. I said, we're not going to have the conference. And they said, we're coming. We know what you want. They grab my heart, the passion. And now they come in. We want to know. We know what you want. We come in to find out how we're going to carry it out next year. So they come in to strategize because I've already outlined the vision and didn't seem to want to be coming together like I want this year. They said, well, we need to go back to the table. Let's strategize. So they're coming in for a volunteer meeting that I didn't call them for. Because they caught my passion. And that's so important that you don't always have to A, B, C, one, two, three for people to understand what's going on. Because if you know it's hard, you know, it's like when you're in a love relationship, you know, you don't have to always be told all the time what is it you want, what you want to do. You, you should know by then to know your mate enough to know what to do about certain things. So you don't have to get those things together. Read the rest of the text so I can finish that. Henceforth I call you not servants. Mm -hmm. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. See, I'm bringing you in. See, when, when Pastor plans strategy meeting, he's 
giving you some things that he can't give to everybody else. He wants to share rawly, this is what God's placed in my heart. What I need you to do is figure out how we can get this to the congregation so they can comprehend and understand this. So I need, I'm meeting with you because now I'm, I'm not treating you like servants. I'm treating you like friends. And your and your friend because it see a servant don't need to know see if I if I didn't love you I wouldn't bring you into a meeting to talk discuss my plans I'll just give you orders because you just give servants orders but friends you bring and give your heart so you can strategize how to take my heart to work this is one of those leadership strategy meetings okay read the rest of it henceforth I call you not servants mm -hmm. for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. See? But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my father I have made known unto you. See, I mean, he hasn't held back anything. Strategies that he had, things that God has put in his heart. I'm not talking about things that he's telling you as, as, um, as a congregation, but in order to get things to work, he has to pass out handouts, give you books, give you tapes, try to tell you, I want you to sit under this, teach you it, I want you to get this, because with this, you can get a strategy to help me. So I'm trying to give you strategy tools. That's what he brings later. And when he gives something in your hand, a book, a tape, a handout, it is to help you to strategize. He's saying, now how can we make this work in, my, in this house? That's it. He got something that said, okay, this worked over here, and we got a strategy for it. Now, you guys know this church. You guys know these people. I need you to strategize on how we can make it work in this house. I know it, it seemed to have worked over there. We can't follow it exactly the way they do it, but I need you to look at it and grab a pattern and know how Philippian works. Let's see how we can make it work here. Amen? Amen. Read on. Ye have not chosen me, mm -hmm. but I have chosen you. See? And ordained you. Ah, here we go with that ordination. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. In other words, even though all of us are called to ministry, we're all called to salvation, God hand-selects who he wants to serve close to a leader. Jesus went out and did something different than rabbis of his day because in Jesus' day, students picked their rabbis. Jesus broke the pattern and picked the students. Student, you know, just like we pick the schools we want to go to. I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm going to go to Yale. I'm going to go to Princeton. You know, pick the school. I, I'll go wherever I want. I just take the entrance exam and do. That's how students did in Jesus' day. They would, they would see certain rabbis teaching, and they'll just want to gather together and follow behind that rabbi. Jesus said, I don't want that. I'm going to hand select those that I want to be with me. So he goes out and said, you drop your nets and follow me. Get up from your tax bench and follow me. I'm going to hand select my students. My students are going to be different than other students because they're going to have my heart and my spirit because I need to hand-select them. So when leader picks you and hand-selects you for an assignment, for a task, it's because he knows what he wants to get out of you later. You might say, I can't do that. I'm not assigned for that. I tell you all the people all the time, there's an anointing with an appointment. Amen. When you get appointed, you get anointed. You have to get that strong in your spirit. Let's finish up right fast. What we got? Touch. We did transformation, and, we, and then we did ordination, right? The third, the third, what we have to do is get some unity. 
Third touch is that a touch from God is going to unify you. So we need some unity. Uh, this is an easy one. Psalm 133, verse 1. It's an easy one, but we'll, we'll read that one anyway. Because it's so important that we get this whole idea of unity. Many churches fall, fall and fail because leaders don't work together. It is the spirit of competition that disorganizes churches because we compete with one another about something we shouldn't even compete about. Even the disciples that were around Jesus wind up competing. They said to Jesus, when you get in your kingdom, can we, can we decide who's going to sit on the right and the left hand? Who's going to really be your first assistant and your second assistant? Jesus said to him, if you can drink this cup, if you could step out from Florida and come to North Carolina with nothing and walk into something that God tell you and make it happen, if you can drink this cup, you can sit on my right, on my left hand. In other words, if you can pay your dues. You know, when you came here, the seats was here, the pulpit here, everything is, is nice, it's beautiful. It's nice to be up here teaching in a place that I didn't sacrifice for. How come I can't preach on Sunday? Did you pay your dues? Where were you when we were, you know, in my house and trying to decide whether to write the, the rent check or to put some money for the Lord? Where, where were you when, when, when we was in the, uh, the business center over there and, and sometimes not knowing if the rent's going to be paid for the month, we come there and the lot's going to be locked or you're going to come in there going, hallelujah, hallelujah. And now that we got here, folks come, look what we done. We ain't done nothing. <laughs> but now that there's people there, nice podium up here, nice strong building, and the church is full, I want to preach. Where were you when he was out there preaching on New Bern, right next to church's chicken, passing out flies? See, I know some stories. It took that to get this. And you got to understand that. So when you talk about what you're entitled to, what I need to do right now, think about Jesus said, I want to get right left. Jesus said, wait a minute. You know what I'm getting ready to do? I'm getting ready to die on the cross. Now, you sure you want to follow me? There's some things I got to suffer that you can't handle. Amen. I, one of our conferences a few years ago, one of the... Uh, uh, the guys come, he said, God said, well, I want to be like you. I want to have the same ministry that you have. I want that anointness on your life. He said, you do? He said, Lord, make them bankrupt. Lord, mess up their household. Lord, he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, you say you want my anointing. <laughs> See, you don't know what people have gone through to get what they got. Amen. All you know is the end result. So he says, I've ordained you. I have set you apart. And now I need you to unify. In other words, I need you all to work together. You know, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we all baptize into one body. The foot cannot say to the hand, I'm not part of the body. This competition with my gift is greater than your gift. You know, it's not what it's all about. It's the gifts that be used to build up the body. Amen. We got to get unity. Psalm 133, verse 1 says what? Behold, 
how mm-hmm. good and how pleasant it is for brethren to, to dwell together in unity. Now, he's saying if we come together with one thought to lift up the name of Jesus, lift up the name of Jesus, we all got one thought. All we want to do is make sure that Jesus is glorified and that the devil is terrified. He describes what happens when we unify. What happens? Verse 2. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The ointment that's upon the head. Your head is your leader. The anointing runs down. It doesn't run up. I'm anointed. It don't run up. You don't get anointed and anoint him. He's anointed and anoints you. And some of you don't realize you're only anointed because you're in this house. So that when you step out from your covering, you're going to find yourself all messed up because your anointing was because you are obedient to leadership. And when you become disobedient to leadership, you wonder what happened. But I thought I was anointed. You were as long as you were under. He said unity is like the precious oil that because when you pour it on the head, it runs down and it runs to the beard. Read on. What else does it say? That went down to the skirts of his (laughs) garments. Goes all the way down to the skirts of his garments. Look, that means it's going into the church because once it runs from him, it runs to his leaders and then it cashes out into the church. It's a flow. It's an organized flow. If we have to go from the leader to the people, we messed up the flow. Because the beard is you. The skirts is the congregation. But it's got to get to the beard before it gets to the skirt. I can't bypass my leadership and get to the church. And sometimes things cannot get to the church or be discussed right because I got leadership problems. The beard hasn't got wet yet. So how do I expect the body to get wet? Because I got to get them straight. Got to worry about who's spending more time with the pastor than the other. Who preached two weeks ago? I thought I was supposed to be next in line. You might have been on the assignment, but then the Lord says, you know, I need somebody else. And I, I, I thought it was my turn. Competition. It's not like that. It's how the Lord leads. And if you know, if you've been around your past as much as I've been around him, and you know that sometimes God changes him. So you got to go with the change. You got to know your leader. And you got to know if he's flowing in the spirit, sometimes he's not flowing in a pattern. And even though you may have been next, it's not personal. It's spiritual. You know, you know, God's saying to me that, uh, 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 Brother Johnny, you, it's not you this time. But it was my turn. I understand. I, and I love you, son. But, you know. But if you can't take it, the anointing can't run from the head to the beard. And here's God sometimes trying to run the anointing past the beard to drip over so the church can get blessed because the beard is dry. You know, your presence doesn't help unless it's joyful. You don't help the house just sitting up here looking mean. Because you like those men I read in 1 Samuel 10, 27. 
They despised Saul, so they didn't even bring him a gift. I mean, they sit on everything. Everybody else up rejoicing, you sit. You're here, but you're not here. You're coming. I'm coming in. I'm going. I'm, I'm, not, I'm upset. Why, why are you upset? I don't know why I'm upset. I'm just upset. Just mad just for the sake of being mad. About what? I ain't really mad about no. I'm hurt, and sometimes people are hurt because you ain't done things their way. It's about their way, but, but I, I don't like, I don't, and they, they don't like certain things. Your, your thoughts are not his thoughts. Your ways are not his ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so is God's ways above your ways. Isaiah 55, 7 and 8. So you got to understand that if your ways are not his ways, the way God moves with a leader is not the way you think. It's the way you receive. Stop thinking and receive. I hear many leaders say amen. <laughs> it's about the way you receive, not the way you think. So, so, so get the touch together. First, you've got to be transformed. Secondly, you've got to be ordained because you've got to be set apart. Thirdly, you've got to be unified because without the unity of leaderships, there can be no flow from the audience. And sometimes pastors trying to struggle through a barrier that's not coming from demons in the back, but leaders in the front, whose heart have really not been touched by God. Uh-oh. I ain't preaching on nothing. I'm preaching about something. Okay? So God wants, God, look, look, look what happened to Saul. Saul was successful because of these men whose heart God had touched. And God's going, to be, God's going to be successful in this house and grow it to the next level because your heart's been touched. Amen. All these leaders that are sitting here, you have to have a touched heart from God. You've got to be transformed. You've got to be ordained, set apart. You've got to, be, you've got to have some unity. Amen. Well, let's get the next one, get it, get it in place. Hey, let me give you another scripture, Alicia. Uh, After you're unified. This touch of God has got to bring the kind of harmony and love. You know, Ephesians 4. Yeah, do Ephesians 4, 2 and 3 before I move to the next one. I want to I drive home this point of, of, of unity because it's so important that Paul talks about how our faith has got to be unified. Not only just what we do, but our faith. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. With all lowliness and meekness. Well, you got to go to, let me go to verse one. Let me show you verse one first. Go to verse one. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Let me explain you something about what he's saying. The word prisoner in the Greek is a word by the name of hupaleo. Now, that term hupaleo, and the reason why I'm giving it to you, because it, it means in cater. It was talking about a slave ship. And if you remember the dynamics of the slave ship, what keeps the slaves pulling the oars is the guy on the drum going. And they kept the caters to the rowing of the ship. That was hoopaleo. Every time he banged, you rolled. So Paul says, I'm a prisoner every time I hear the voice of God. Every time I hear God doing something. I'm not grumbling. I'm not complaining. I am a prisoner who plays. Oh. 
Every time you hear the voice of your leader, you're hearing the voice of God. Amen. He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm not, I don't even see my imprisonment, my circumstances coming from man. I'm of God. Because through my trouble, through my situations, through my ups, through my downs, I'm still rolling. Amen. I'm not complaining. I'm not murmuring. I'm not talking. Sometimes things are messing me up, but I'm still. I can't fall back and get all messed up because Pastor cut me tonight. I don't know why he keeps talking about my stuff. So Ephesians 4 and 1, Paul says, I'm therefore the prisoner of the Lord. And he was locked up in prison by Caesar. Yet he didn't consider himself a prisoner of Caesar. I am rowing. I'm going to keep my faith no matter what my situation. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to keep right on rowing. I don't know why God turned and put me in this situation, but I don't consider myself Caesar's prisoner. I'm God's prisoner. Yeah. I'm not going to give the devil any credit. Where I'm going through, God must have taken me yeah. through this. Yeah. It must be a reason I'm here. All I know is I'm going to hold fast yeah. to what God has given me. I'm going to poop a leo. I'm going to keep rowing to the beat. Some of you don't want to keep rolling to me. You want to stop. Anything get you off your temple. So he beseeched you. He begged you that in light of this temple that we should be on, we should do what? With all lowliness uh-huh. and meekness. Yes. With long suffering. See, we got to get our character together. We got uh, to take our beat and do it like we really love God. With all lowliness, that means humility. Meekness, have your strength under control. <laughs> you know, I, I, I know you're big and bad. I'm, you're a man just like me, but have your strength under control. Yes, sir. You know, I, I'm an old military man. So, I, you know, one of the things I learned about the military, was, you know, I was in the military about 40 years ago. You can work. <laughs> so I remember some of the military code of honor. But we were, if you messed up, if your conduct messed up, you got what they called an Article 13. The thing was, though, if you went in the stockade, what, was, what you found very early that people began to realize that if you were really not a career person and you want to hurt and serve your time to get out, if you keep getting Article 13s, mm-hmm. your time stopped when you went in the stockade. Yeah, yeah. And you had just as much as time to serve when you went in as you went out. So six months in the stockade didn't knock six months off your term of duty. It just extended it. Uh, somebody don't get it. Some of you could get out of this if you just become more obedient. Because all you're doing is extending your time to something that could have been handled if you got your attitude right. Well, Lord, why am I still here? Why did they stay in the wilderness 38 years? Because they kept murmuring against God. Because there was a promise on their life, God had to sustain them. But he didn't have to elevate them. And it's a shame for God to pour 
what he's going to do out of your loins because he got a promise on your life. He'll pull children out of you that's going to get blessed with the blessing you should have got. And yet there was a generation of blessing that was meant for you, and there's a generation of blessing meant for your kids, but because you're in a holding pattern, and because you've been disobedient, God's got to give your children a double anointed to another generation because he's got to keep his word that I'm going to bring you out, but it ain't got to be through you. As long as it's through your seed, I've still kept my word. Wow. So even though you went into the stockade, you still got to serve me when you come out. You ain't eliminating nothing by going in. And the strategy when I was in the military was you don't want to go in the stockade because your time going to stop Amen. until you come out. So you still got the same amount of time when you come out. You just lost time. And some of you are losing your position with God because you acting up, not realizing it ain't going to help you to get promoted. Why is it after 30 years I'm still just a minister? Because you ain't learned the secret of promotion. It doesn't come from your ability. It comes from your accessibility. Finish reading what he, what he says. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord mm -hmm. beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Right. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. See, long suffering means staying there regardless if it's taking a while. Amen. You know, it might be taking its time, but you got to stay with it. Long suffering is, it may not be at the time you think it's going to happen. So you, sometimes you got to be long-suffering with the process. You know, pastor's taking too long. Just be patient with the process. There's some things that's got to work out. I know you got it the first three sentences I said, but he, he over there, he needs the 15 sentences. <laughs> and you need to be long-suffering to know to wait for him yes, because you got it don't mean we had to get up. Yes, I used to go to a guy's church and teach, and every time I, I said the message, give my thought, start with my first point, he'd jump up, school's out! School's out. I got it. I looked at him. Will you sit down? You need to learn a little long-suffering. Everybody's trying to work their way through it. And just because you got it don't mean school's out. Everybody don't learn on the same level. And so you got to be long-suffering. The Bible says comfort the feeble-minded. Don't criticize them because they're a little slower than you. Maybe you got that. But I bet you there's some things they're going to get faster than you. So you need to be patient. Long-suffering means just because you got it, don't think the rest of the world gets it. You got to wait. Some things you just got to wait on. I, I know it. I know it. I know. Why can't they get it? stupid. I got that 15 minutes ago. They get some long-suffering. Just wait. You got it. Pray for them, Father. Reveal it to them. Bless them right now, Lord. Pray for somebody else's vision to open Amen. instead of yes, criticizing because they ain't got it open. Forbearing one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of see, peace. See, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's always to look for peace. We always have to mandate peace. Look at verse 13. 
Till we all come in the unity of the faith. See, wait, wait. We got the unity of the spirit. Then we got the unity of the faith. These two, in between those two verses, have to come together. We got to get the unity of the spirit. We need the unity of the faith. So we're striving for unity of the spirit, which means that we got to work in harmony. The word there for unity is a word in the Greek called symphonia. It means that's where we get our word symphony from which means you got all of these instruments that are different that lines up. But when you strike them all together, I always love to go to symphony orchestras. I like to be there before they start because I love hearing the warm-up because the warm-up is so chaotic. <laughs> Until the duck conductor goes. And then all of a sudden when he hits it, everybody just smooths out in such harmony. And you want it because before, everybody just trying to get this up. That's the way it sounds. And I love it because I know I'm waiting for the symphony. All these instruments make different sounds, but when you put them all together, you know, all you got different anointings, but if we learn how to work together. The melody that's going to come out of the symphonia if we all raise our hands at the same time, yes, if we all praise the Lord together, the symphony, because then when the conductor starts, I just list back, oh, God, this is so beautiful. They were all chaotic, but then when it came time, everybody did their part, Amen. and then it all came together. That's the beauty of it. Amen. Let me finish. Um, unity of the Spirit, I'm almost through. Ah, the sea is about conquering, and this is so important. Conquest is about clarification, clarification, because when you conquer, see, you met your touch, let's get your touch together, uh, transformation, ordination, unity, and now conquest. You got you to gotta get this conquest together. I, I love Romans 8 when it talks about this. Uh, Romans 8, 37 through 8, 39. It is these three questions that you have to ask against opposition that really brings you to this place of really knowing where you are and what uh, conquest really means. See, when you start in ministry, the misconception is that people think ministry is easy. And they think everybody's been waiting for you to show up. Yeah, nobody promised you at Disneyland. When Jesus got ordained in the River Jordan with John in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1 says, the Spirit led him in the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. That devil, he ain't led me into that problem. You think you just came to a vic victory because you got ordained? You don't know. Trouble just started. Because God ordained you, now you got to be tested. You got to be tried in the fire. Now, you gotta, I got to find out, are you here because you got elevated or are you here because you love me? And what is it going to take? So uh, here's your fortification. Here's your conquest. Uh, Romans 8, 37. Nay, in all these things, mm -hmm. we are more than... You know what? I want you to go back up to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Uh, okay, here we go. Look at the questions. It is a question. See, it is important. That if we've been called, we've been set apart, we've been ordained, there are certain questions that you must ask yourself personally. This becomes an evaluation. Mm 
Okay, an evaluation. In fact, go all the way back up to verse 31, because this is the evaluation. You got to see what, what all of this stuff really puts you in to see. Go ahead. What's verse 31? What shall we then say to these things? What are we saying? See, the whole thing is that whom God called, he predestined, he elected, he fortified, he glorified. So what shall we say to these things? If God has given us all of this power, if he's given us all this anointing, if he's given us all these things that are happening for us, what can we say to these things? Read on. If God be for us. If he's for us. Who can be against us? So see, when you worry about the oppositions that come against your ministry, don't worry about it because the rhetorical questions come now. Now we come to some rhetorical questions. You understand that a rhetorical question is a question that really doesn't need to be answered. Because the answer is obvious. So he gives three rhetorical questions. And the rhetorical questions here come because i got to get you to understand. If you understand the rhetorical statements, then you won't question why your ministry is going the way it's going. Because you have to look at what happens at the end, not what's happening in the middle. You know, I, I had a time getting get to that song in the middle of, in the middle of, you know, in the middle of, I, I'm at the end. What about in the middle? Because see, that middle will mess you up. It'll keep you from walking through the right door. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I ain't in the middle of nothing. Because the Bible says you walk through the valley. Yes. 